Well, we will be dealing with this morning um, the sovereignty of God and his rule and the suffering that's present in our world. And while I won't be able to deal with every part of that complex issue, I wanted to take a, a second and recommend some resources to you all, especially in this season when our culture and our world is thinking a lot about this. Um, these are three helpful books. They, there could be others added to it. And unfortunately, right now, none of them are on our bookshelf, so they're not immediately available. But we'll try to get a few of those ordered for you. Um, the first one is Don Carson's How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil. This is an excellent book. Um, it is it is one of the best that I've seen. Um, Randy Alcorn's latest book, or one of his latest book, If God is Good, and uh, the subtitle's Faith in the Midst of Suffering and Evil. I would commend that one to you. It's quite thick, but Randy, or Randy Alcorn is very readable. And then a, a shorter book, but nonetheless extremely helpful, is Dan McCartney, Why Does It Have to Hurt? The Meaning of Christian Suffering. This is excellent as well, and I would commend that to you. Sinclair Ferguson and others recommend that book as well. So those are just three books. If you'd like to take a look at them, you can see me after the service. But those are three resources that I think would be helpful as we wrestle together through this um, complex issue of God's sovereignty over evil and suffering. Well, why this sermon today? Well, I don't think it, it needs a whole lot of explanation it is the 10-year anniversary of a, of a culture-shaping event. And normally, as you all know here at Heritage, we make our way systematically through books of the Bible. And occasionally we'll stop and address a particular issue that we feel like is, um, is culturally uh, relevant and needed and, and, and we need to have a biblical perspective on. C.J. Mahaney writes in a, in a helpful article called 9-11 Crisis and the Pastor – he says that pastors should not emulate popular preaching models that are preoccupied with felt needs and strap every message to current events. But there are times when it's appropriate, wise, and necessary to devote an entire sermon to a particular national or local crisis that has captured the attention of the culture and the church. So when there is an event that has captured national or local attention, where there, was a, where there is a broad effect or an enduring effect, that has raised larger issues, we need to seize those occasions to address and equip the church. And that's my desire this morning in light of the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. Well, I was, 20, I was a 21-year-old college senior who was sound asleep in my dorm room at 9 a.m. 10 years ago. The advantage of being a senior is you get to sleep in a little bit more. You don't have those 8 a.m. classes like you have when you're a freshman. But around 9 o'clock, my roommate came running into our room and told me to come next door and see on television what was happening. And little did I know that several hundred, hundreds of miles away, while I was sound asleep, two planes were flying into the World Trade Towers. Flight 11 struck the first tower and immediately killed the 92 people on board the flight. Flight 175 flew into a second tower a few minutes later, killing the 65 people on board. But the tragedy soon went from bad to worse as the tower them, towers themselves came crashing down a few hours later, killing over 2,500 people, including those who worked there, those who were visiting there, and the brave men and women who entered there to save those who were caught. But as bad as that was, the fear that shot across our nation wasn't quite over. Flight 77, carrying 64 people, hit the Pentagon within an hour of the first attack. Inside the Pentagon, 125 people died in addition to those aboard the plane. Then Flight 93, with 45 people on board, turned around over Philadelphia, heading perhaps for Washington, D.C. It was on this flight that Todd Beamer and others wrestled control from the hijackers and crashed the plane near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. No one survived, 
except all those whose lives they courageously spared. The total fatalities from all the events of the morning neared 3,000. Now, we've been in the Psalms the last several weeks studying together what the Psalms teach us about walking with God. We've looked at various circumstances God's people find themselves in and what the Psalms teach us about how to respond to those circumstances. We've looked at envy, depression, guilt, and joy, among others. Today, we come to uncertainty, the feeling of uncertainty. And with some degree of irony, we come to Psalm 93, the same number of the flight that Todd Beamer and others bravely brought down in Pennsylvania. I didn't think about that as I planned this particular sermon, but kind of neat. From Psalm 93 this morning, we're going to see three truths about God that recalibrate us towards solid hope during this decade reminder of our decade reminder of our national and personal fragility. And here's the first truth I want us to see from Psalm 93. God rules over this world. Psalm 93 is an enthronement psalm. That is, it's one in a series along with Psalm 96 and Psalm 97 and Psalm 99, as well as others that are around this, starting with Psalm 93, which celebrates God's sovereign kingship over the earth. You'll notice the beginning of several of these psalms talk about this. Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. And then Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. So several of these psalms in this particular part of the book of Psalms are dealing with this theme of God's sovereign kingship over the earth. Look at me. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 where we will see that God rules over his world. The psalmist begins, the Lord reigns. Statement of fact. He is robed in majesty. That is, God is enthroned in the heavens, constantly exerting his will and exercising his rule over everything. The psalmist describes God as robed in majesty. What's depicted here is his regal grandeur, wearing the garments of a victorious king after a great battle. He's clothed in the apparel that shows off his supremacy and his dignity and his glory. Notice it says he has put on strength as his belt. That is, he's not only royal and splendid, but he's powerful. His strength overshadows that of all earthly kings. Not only is he regal and glorious and supreme and dignified and powerful and splendid, but verse 2, or the latter parts of verse 1 says, Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. That is both the physical planet as well as the moral, social, and spiritual laws that govern it have been ordained by God himself. Though it may seem different, nothing can ultimately move or even less destroy God's creation except God. In spite of all that man might try to do, the eternal plan of God cannot be thwarted or altered by the schemes of mere humans. The world is established. It shall never be moved. And then in verse 2, we get a description of just how long and great God's kingship has been. Your throne is established from of old. 
you are from everlasting. That is, God is uncreated. He is without beginning. He has eternally existed, and he has been reigning for as long as he's been around, which is to say forever. And that will always be the case. Steve Lawson writes, and we're ta- what we're talking about here is the sovereignty of God. You may have heard that term before. The sovereignty of God. And Steve Lawson writes, the foundational truth of all Christian theology is the sovereignty of God. That is the absolute reign of God that represents his undisputed right to govern all that he has made. God's reign is the continual, unhindered, free exercise of his supreme authority over everything. The sovereignty of God means quite simply that God is God. Not merely in name, but in full reality. That is, God always does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, how he pleases, and with whom he pleases. Herein is the truth of divine sovereignty, his unrivaled right to rule over everything he has made. And that's well said. And the obvious question that comes, and that's come across our nation again, if you've been watching the news the last couple days, as they've interviewed clergy and things is where was God in all of this if he's this great ruler this great sovereign this great king over all the earth R.C. Sproul responds 10 years ago I repeatedly heard the question raised where was God in all of this where was God on 9-11 when the planes crashed into the twin towers in New York the Pentagon in Washington D.C. and a field near Shanksville Pennsylvania my answer then was the same as it is now God was in the precise place on 9-11 that he was on the day before and the day after and 10 years later He was on his throne and continues to be on his throne because he's the Lord God who reigns. He reigns day in and day out in consistent manifestation of his immutable sovereignty. So God rules over his world. We see that clearly in verses 1 and 2. Second point, God works in his world. God works in his world. He not only rules over his world as some distant potentate, as some distant king, but he is involved. In his world, verses 3 and 4, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now get what the psalmist is doing here. He's using words like flood, flood, flood repeatedly as a as kind of a picture as kind of a metaphor as to paint the scene of and, and kind of help us to feel what he's describing here he's saying the floods lord have lifted up the floods have lifted up their voice the floods have lifted up their roaring this continual beating of the waves which we're going to see what that's all about in a second but then in verse 4 he says mightier 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 is the lord Now, these verses teach us not only that God is sovereign over his creation, but he's deeply involved in his creation. He's not only controls it from above, but sustains it and moves within it. He's not an absentee landlord. He's always involved, and he's always in charge. Now, what does the psalmist mean by the floods? The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. What is he talking about there? Well, some take this to refer to God's sovereignty over nature, literal water. And that would make sense coming off the heels of verse 2, which speaks of God's creation and his world as being established. And in that case, he's talking about the physical creation. 
In this sense, the verse would be saying that even though the world of nature is in constant turmoil, nevertheless, God is sovereign even over these changes of things like tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. And while that's certainly true, I don't think that's exactly what the psalmist is alluding to in these verses. I think what the psalmist is talking about is the vacillating world of people and nations. That is the moral chaos of this present world. In the Old Testament, the imagery of surging and pounding seas and restless waves repeatedly refers to the moral disorder that is characteristic of this world. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 17? I want to show us a couple verses on this. That this imagery of surging and the waves and the sea refers to the moral disorder of this fallen world. Isaiah 17 and verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. So here we see the nations, the people being described as water that's mighty and rushing. Also, Jeremiah, the next prophecy over from Isaiah, in chapter 6, speaks of this in a similar way as well. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 23 Starting at verse 22, thus says the Lord, behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. This is talking about the judgment that's coming against Israel for their sin. And then Jeremiah chapter 50, near the end of the prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 42. This will be the last verse we'll look at on this, under this idea. Starting at verse 41 to get context. Behold, a people comes from the north, a mighty nation, and many kings are stirring from the farthest parts. They lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring of the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. So this whole idea, I just wanted to to show that waves in the Bible doesn't necessarily always mean physical waves. And especially in the Psalms, we get figurative language all over the place. And I think this is one of those instances. The psalmist is using figurative language to describe specifically the, the judgments, the attacks that have come against his people. The moral disorder and chaos that is prevalent in the life of God's people. And he's saying God is mightier than that. All the destructive powers of sin and Satan are embodied here in the sea. And that threatens God's established order in the earth. And especially the safety and security of his people. But verse 4 stresses that God is sovereign and more powerful than all that develops in human history. God is mightier 
than the thunders of many waters. He's mightier than the waves of the sea. As we sang this morning, he plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Richard Belcher helpfully summarizes the point of verses 3 and 4 when he says, The torrential downpours of the waters is a picture of chaotic forces unleashed in this world. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. The forces of chaos have asserted their power to claim rule of the universe, but God is mightier than the sea. Thus, the Israelites understood that in a world of instability, there is someone who provides permanence. And in a world of chaos, there is someone who is in control. The Lord and no one else is king. He has no rival. The Lord reigns. And this is the repeated refrain of all of Scripture. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, God works all things after the counsel of his will. And these all things include, according to Matthew 10, 29, birds falling out of the sky dead in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And according to Proverbs 16.33, what numbers appear on the dice of every craps table in Las Vegas? It also comes down to the God's sovereignty extends even to the persecution and killing of Christians. Psalm 44.11 and 1 Peter 4.19. It also falls over the decisions of kings and governments. Proverbs 21.1. God's sovereignty extends to the failing of human eyesight. Exodus 4.11. It extends to the sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12:15. It, it extends to the loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2:7. It extends to the completion of our travel plans, James 4:15. It includes the repentance and faith of every sinner, 2 Timothy 2:25 and Philippians 1:29. It includes God's sovereignty extends to the growth of every Christian, Philippians 3:12 and 13 and Hebrews 6:3. And it also includes the giving of life and the taking in death, Job 121. From the smallest thing to the greatest thing, good and evil, happy and sad, Christian and pagan, God governs them all for his wise, just, and good purposes. Even in the most painful situations, Amos 3.6 states, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Or after losing ten of his children in the collapse of his son's house and being covered with painful boils, Job 2.16 states, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Wait, Job, I thought that came from Satan. It did, but Satan, although he is greatly evolved, he's on a leash. And we must conclude where Job concludes. In Job 42, verse 2 and 11, where he finds his brothers and sisters consoling him, quote, for all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him, and where he himself confesses, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, even the purpose you had for the killing of my children. Which, according to James, was compassionate and merciful. The Bible teaches that God could have restrained the great evil of 9-11. But for his own sovereign purposes, he didn't. Genesis 2 Genesis chapter 20, verse 6 speaks of God restraining the heart of a king from committing sexual sin. He stopped him from sinning, and God can stop any hijacker from sinning. Psalm 33.10 states that God nullifies the counsel of the nations and frustrates the plans of the peoples. God could have done that too. He could have frustrated and foiled all the terroristic plans, but he didn't. He allowed the wicked to execute their plans, and in and through it all, he was working out 
his great plan. Now, that is not to say that his intentions and the execution of his plan were the same as the intentions of the wicked in executing their plan. Doug Wilson has a very helpful clarifying statement on this when he says, We serve a God who providentially governs all things in line with, through, under, and contrary to the intentions of the human actors involved. This means his providential actions are not to be taken as an instance of him taking up sides, neither for America nor for the terrorists. When we say that God intends something, we are not saying that he intends whatever presidents or terrorists intend. The intentions of God the Father in the death of Jesus were quite distinct from the intentions of Judas, the Sanhedrin, Herod, and Pontius Pilate. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, that Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But at the same time as Peter is preaching that sermon, he's condemning them for killing Jesus. What the people did against Jesus was wicked and sinful, and it brought about the greatest good. Our salvation hangs on this great truth. If you've got a problem with God's sovereign control over events like this, you've got a problem with the cross. God uses the wickedness of men for incalculable good. The greatest good to the world came about because of the greatest evil done in it. The execution of the beautiful one, the eternal one, the glorious one, this very king that Psalm 93 speaks of, hung on a cross, bled, died under the wrath of God and the sinful acts of human beings. Judas had his plan. The Sanhedrin had their plan. Pontius Pilate had his plan. But God had his plan. And while we don't know the ultimate reasons behind why God allows all the suffering and all the evil in the world to continue, we do know what the reason isn't. And what the reason isn't is because is that God does not love us. The cross demonstrates totally the opposite. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. As the many New York City firefighters pressed further up and further in into those smoke-filled halls and fire-infested rooms of the World Trade Center to save the lives of a few, the eternal Son of God was sent by his Father to the cross to atone and die for the ones who pled for his execution. As the fire of God's wrath engulfed him and the waves of judgment washed over him, Jesus atoned for the sins of all those who would ever turn from their rebellion and follow him in obedient faith. Indeed, as the Song of Solomon puts it, many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. And that was the case at the cross. Don Carson puts it this way. The mystery of providence defies our attempt to tame it by reason. I do not mean it is illogical. I mean that we do not know enough to be able to unpack it and domesticate it. Perhaps we may gauge how content we are to live with our limitations by assessing whether we are comfortable in joining the biblical writers in utterances that mock our frankly idolatrous devotion to our own capacity to understand. So God rules over his world. And God acts 
in his world. And finally, God guides through his world. God rules over his world. God acts in his world. And God guides through his world. Verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now, not only does God rule over it and act in it, but he guides through it. And he guides through it in two ways, according to verse 5. The first one is he gives his word to us. And then secondly, he gives his presence to us. So he gives us his word for his people and his presence to his people. First of all, his word for his people. Our God has spoken. He has spoken and he has given us the Bible that we might know him, understand his ways, trust his care and walk humbly with him. You see that right there in verse five, your decrees, your decrees, your statutes, that is your word. Decrees and statutes and those sorts of words, according to Psalm 119, are used interchangeably for God's God's reveal, God's revelation in the scriptures. And he says of the of these of this revelation, your decrees are very trustworthy. This verse speaks of God's word as being trustworthy. The things that are contained in Scripture rest on the integrity of the God who speaks them. Everything that God has spoken, including all the things that we have heard this morning, and as much as they're consistent with his word, are to be believed because God cannot lie and he doesn't deceive. It is pure, unadulterated truth, and we desperately need such an infallible revelation in these shaky and uncertain times in which we live. We're lost without it. In fact, we're lost in this way. On their latest album, Eclipsed, world-renowned rock band Journey have a song entitled, To Whom It May Concern, and the lyrics are this. Man is love. Man is animal. A warrior, an intellectual. He's the face of original sin. He's the devil and the poet within. So far, so good. Man is made in the image of God, capable of incalculable good, also fallen and capable of incalculable evil. Here's where we go astray. Our fathers have embraced the Messiah or made peace with Allah, even sought to be like Buddha, to follow the old ways of Krishna. Pretending prophets come to rule this age, turn the faith to fuel the wars they stage. Well, something has to change to go beyond the pain and somehow turn the page. So what's their prescription for world peace? Horus, to whom it may concern, I'm sending out a prayer. The world finds peace in my lifetime. To whom it may concern, are you listening? Are you there? I'll keep my hopes for paradise of life, to whom it may concern. Now, this song reflects the spirituality of our time. The understanding that man bears the image of God is fallen and capable of incalculable evil is right. Man is warrior. Man is intellectual. The longing for peace and paradise is right. However, we have the Bible. And the God who inspired it. So thankfully, we are not lost in prayers addressing a God we don't know. Or we can't know. No, the one true and living God has spoken and given us his word and his decrees are trustworthy. He has spoken. 
So what does God's word teach us then about his purposes for suffering? And while I can't go into great detail on all those, I do want to give you five very briefly. Now, while we seldom know the micro reasons for human suffering, that is the individual specific details, the Bible does give us many macro reasons, many big reasons why God permits and causes suffering in the world. It's, it's good to have these bigger macro reasons in view so when both national tragedies happen and personal tragedies happen, that we've got some bearings for what God might be doing in those situations. And here's five. And John Piper helpfully summarizes them in five R's, and I'm going to give them to you quickly. The first one of God's macro purposes in national suffering and in personal suffering is repentance. Suffering on a national level and a personal level is a call for us and others to turn from everything that we look to and set our hope on and put it on God. Luke 13, 4 and 5 speaks of the 9-11 of Jesus' day, the Tower of Siloam, when it fell and killed people. And people approached Jesus and said, hey, where, were you, where was God when that happened? Why'd that happen? Were they, is it because they were sinful and they deserved it? Was it the judgment of God? Jesus responds, those, thir- those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. That's Jesus. Repentance. Tragedy is a call to repentance. It's a a call to turn to God. Secondly, it's a call to reliance. Suffering is a call to turn from the things we look to to prop us up and give us hope and trust God. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. Why, Paul? Why did all that happen? Why did it feel like you're about to die? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God sends suffering to turn our reliance away from ourselves to him. Thirdly, righteousness. Repentance, reliance, righteousness. Suffering is designed to discipline Christians And it's the discipline sent by our loving Heavenly Father so that we come to share in His holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6, 10, and 11. The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those of you who are parents in here, you know what it's like to take your young son or daughter to that first round of shots at the pediatrician. You'll walk, you walk them in there, and they're just, they can be happy and smiling and cooing and giggling. And then you set them down on the table, and the doctor sticks them, and they look at you like you have just betrayed them so deeply. They wail, and they cry, and they're like, how could you do this to me? I thought you loved me. And you know in all of that, you're doing it because you love them. You're doing it for their good. You're doing it because they're gonna, they might get really sick if they don't have this. And you know that because you're an adult and they're a baby. Well, you're an adult and God is God. And when he sticks you, 
Don't turn to him and scream in defiance like he doesn't love you. If you belong to him, if you've embraced him, if you've embraced Christ by faith and you're a son or daughter of God, his, the suffering that he, can, he sends into your life is never punitive. Never. It would be double jeopardy to do so. It's never motivated by wrath. It's never motivated by judgment. It's motivated by love from the heart of a father who intends you much good from it. So receive it as such. That's one of the things that suffering, one of the reasons suffering is sent in for repentance, for reliance, and then for righteousness as well, to make us more like Jesus. Fourthly, it's for reward, for reward. Suffering is working for us a great reward in heaven that's going to make up for every loss. God actually sends us suffering so he can pay it forward later on by rewarding us for the faith he gives us and sustaining us through the suffering. How gracious is God? 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he's talking about the breaking down of a human body. He's not talking about serious persecution. The suffering I'm talking about includes the whole, runs the whole gamut. The things that God sends that are, that are hard and difficult. But it includes persecution as well. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So persecution is feeding reward, suffering, feeding reward. So repentance, reliance, righteousness, reward are all macro reasons. But also, and lastly, the reminder. Suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. Philippians 3.10 I suffer that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So repentance, reliance, righteousness, reward, and reminder. John Piper helpfully summarizes for us God's macro purposes for human suffering. So he gives us his word, and those are the things that are in his word that help guide us through this world and all its complexity and difficulty and challenging, challenge to our understanding and feeble mind to grasp. But not only does he give us his word to guide us, but he gives us his presence to be with us. Notice the second part of verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. That is God's presence, God's Close God's nearness, his holiness adorns, is with his house forevermore. And we know that his house is not the temple anymore. It's this temple. The temple is the church of Jesus Christ. And God's presence is in and with his church forever. So Richard Belcher, again, helpfully summarizes what we see in Psalm 93. And connects it to our great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this, I close. Psalm 93 affirms that even though the world is a chaotic place and seems out of control at times, Yahweh is the king who is in control 
who fights for his people and who provides his presence and guidance in this world. Although in Psalm 93, the kingship of Yahweh is in view, partly as a response to the demise of the earthly king, the two sides of divine and human kingship come together in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of David, and he is also the Lord who rules the universe as king on behalf of his people. Jesus is the one who entered into battle for us and defeated all our enemies. As our human representative, Jesus could have prayed to the Lord to save him from the power of death and of the evil one. However, in his death, burial, and resurrection, he secured our victory over death so that now nothing can defeat us as his people. His presence now manifested through the outpouring of the Spirit empowers us to live for his glory and do battle with the enemy. His word continues to give strength, encouragement, and direction. No matter what we are facing in life, our victory is secure in Jesus. One day he will come back and his kingship will be evident to everyone. May that day come soon. All will bow before him and we will live in the glory of the victory he has accomplished for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had together this morning to celebrate, to worship, to grieve, to mourn, and now to, once again, through prayer, transfer our confidence from ourselves to you again. Thank you for the faith-sustaining word of God. Psalm 93 is a precious psalm, and we thank you for how you're revealed in it as the great king of all the earth, as the one who is sovereign over all things and who works in all things for your glory and the good of your people. Thank you for giving us your word to guide us. Thank you for giving us your presence to sustain us. Most of all, thank you for Jesus, the true king who reigns at your right hand and who will one day return and make all things new. In his name we ask it. Amen.